This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. And let me know, what do you want to know about? These days, something I want to know more about is how to create change, how to take this growing, deep concern about the state of women in our country, especially underrepresented women, and turn that concern into progress, which is why I am so thrilled and, frankly, really honored to have Teresa Younger, the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women, join us today. Teresa has spent over 20 years on the front lines of some of the most critical battles for real equity and the elimination of institutionalized oppression. She served as the executive director of the Connecticut General Assembly's Permanent Commission on the Status of Women and as executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut, the first African-American and the first woman to hold that position. Within the philanthropic sector, she serves on initiatives to shape and change the narrative of women women and girls, including grant makers for girls of color, funders for reproductive equity, philanthropy New York, and black funders for social justice. She also serves on a number of boards, including the Ethel Walker School and SE Justice Group, and is a proud Lifetime Girl Scout and Gold Award recipient. Teresa, welcome to Women at Work. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Laura. It's so great to be on with you. I have so many questions to ask you about you, about the work you do, but I actually want to start with the Ms. Foundation. Um, for the people who are my age, um, we grew up as Ms. was being creative, but I think there's a whole world out there that doesn't understand what it is and how it works. So can you fill us in a little bit? Sure. So let me clarify, first off, what the terminology Ms. is about, because I think that has been lost in some context. Um, If we think back to 50 years ago when the Ms. Foundation was founded, as well as when Ms. Magazine was founded, which I'll talk about in a moment, um, Ms. was the gender-neutral determination about whether you were married or not. And so, uh, you know, it was men could be called Mr., and that didn't say anything about their marital status. It just gave them a title and a pronoun and, and things along those lines. So the question was, are you married or are you not? But don't we need something that's neutral and in the middle? So Ms. is that neutral terminology. It was started in the 1970s. Ms. Magazine was the premise. And it was started by Gloria Steinem and Marlo Thomas and uh, Letty Pogman and uh, a woman named Pat Carbine. And those four women got together and they started Ms. Magazine. And they honestly believed at the time that Ms. Magazine would make so much money that they would start a foundation to give all the money away. You got to love it when women dream big. (laughs) They dream big. And so they started the magazine, and the magazine is still around today. But uh, shortly after the magazine started and the foundation was started, we spun off. And the foundation is a standalone 501c3 um, nonprofit public foundation. And so we raise our dollars and give it away. But when it was started, it was really around consciousness raising. It wasn't about giving money away. I mean, if we think about the early 1970s, it was at the same time that we'll get into this. I know Roe v. Wade was was becoming the law of the land. But women at that time could not get credit in their own name. Women at that time um, would look at jobs in the paper and they were divided by four men and four women. So the idea of consciousness raising around women that our voices had uh, needed to be heard, that we could work in fields that we had not seen ourselves in before, that we could pave the way, that we could lift up things, and that we had political power were all things that had not been seen in the early 1970s. And so, you know, it's hard for some of us who've grown up with all of this, you know, Title IX and, and everything else, to understand that there was a time when none of this was standard. And so uh, Ms. Magazine and the Ms. Foundation started just about 50 years ago, 
and we have been going on different paths. But that magazine is about lifting up and amplifying the voices through writing and and policy and advocacy um, in the writing and uh, in those frames and telling those stories. The Ms. Foundation is about amplifying and lifting up and supporting women and girl-led organizations in the United States that are working on movement building and working on having impact and advocacy in their community. So each in its own way is a catalyst for change. One, it continues to be cutting-edge journalism covering topics that we desperately need to know about but we don't find out about in the mainstream press. Right, right. And whereas... The Ms. Foundation is you're planting seeds all over the place. Is that a That's fair right. way of kind of summarizing it? Absolutely a fair way of summarizing it. I would say the magazine is a mechanism by which women's voices are heard. We are the writers, the editors, the publishers in that mechanism, right? Um, with, with the Ms. Foundation, we are absolutely doing that. We are identifying organizations all over the country. We make small to medium to large size grants, not as large as other places, but large for us. And uh, in that process, we are planting seeds of many of the organizations that are the foothold in the bedrock of change in our community um, at one point have been funded by the Ms. Foundation. And what we do know is that almost every single social justice movement in this country has had the impact, the imprimatur of women and girls of color as part of their leadership model. And so that is one of the things that we attempt to do. We have over 1,600 grantee partners in the past 50 years. That is just amazing. I want to dial back to something that you were just mentioning, because I think it's important to explore and understand. Ms. is clearly, the Ms. Foundation for Women is clearly serving all women from all backgrounds, all races, all identities. Um, But it didn't always start out that way. Where did the, when did intersectionality really make its way into the foundation? How did it happen and how is it expanding? Oh, that's a really great question, Laura. You know, I think before we had the terminology intersectionality, which is this concept that we uh, need to show up at all of the intersections of our lives and what that looks like and how we incorporate it, I think many times and at the Ms. Foundation and with Gloria Steinem's leadership, you know, they were recognizing that my experience as a black woman might be different than your experience as a white woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, my experience, you know, in the Midwest might be different than somebody's experience living in a city. Uh, what is that? You know, my identities might be different. Right. And so I think there was some recognition of that. There had always been um, for what well, not always for many years. There had been a recognition around the language. And I would say about um, eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, we became explicit and bold and intentional about the language and unapologetic about the language we wanted to use. So we say that we want to formulate change. Uh, We want to ensure that every voice is heard. We center women and girls of color at the Ms. Foundation as a point of inclusion, not exclusive, not exclusion. So we don't do it exclusive of working on the rights of everybody else, but we are working towards gender equity and equality. And in order to do that, we need a starting point. And if we uh, pick a starting point of those most impacted, then everybody in the pool of inequality will reap the benefit Mm -hmm. of the work we're trying to do. I have to say, for those of you who can only hear Teresa but can't see her, she is in a fabulous T-shirt. It's T-shirt Thursday where she is. And I got to say, explicit, bold, unapologetic. I want that one on a T-shirt, too. (laughs) Um, We'll get that one to you. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, But actually building off this idea of where you start, how do you serve the people that need the help the most, who are most impacted by this kind of advocacy, there's still an almost overwhelming amount of work to be done. How do you shape your priorities in at the foundation. Um, as the CEO, the person who's the leader, um, obviously with a lot of people whose needs you're aware of, um, how do you strategically determine um, the, the short and long-term work? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. that, that It's such a great question. One of the things I re- remind myself is that we listen. 
we listen to those closest to the issues and those most impacted. And I'll be quite honest, when I uh, started at the foundation eight years ago, I went on a listening tour. I did not speak. I went on a listening tour and I heard from the field. And in fact, I met with groups of anywhere between eight and 20 people. So it wasn't like hundreds of people. You can't listen to hundreds of people at the same time. And as I sat in community and in relationship with men and women and gender non-conforming folks, uh, gender un unidentified folks, they told me the stories of what they needed and what they wanted. And when we got back, when I got back, I said to the team, you know, our grantee partners in the field, those doing the work in their communities, their work is not single siloed. It's not just health, just education, just environmental, just economic. These issues are so intertwined, right? They are all connected. And so, you know, one of the things that we did is when we listened, we recognized that we could not just do it the way it had always been done. We trust women have the answers to help and heal their communities. And that is the best way to get to the highest levels of gender equity. And so we support movement building led by women, particularly women and girls of color in the United States, the U.S. territories, uh, Puerto Rico and Guam. And, uh, and that is, is how we do it. Uh, we do it in a way that actually is very different in philanthropy. We don't give them the answer. We don't tell them we want to fund their bright and shiny projects. What we do is we give them the money and say, we trust you to do the work that needs to get done. And we trust you to determine how that's going to happen. And so that trust-based philanthropy is where we do our work best. It's really an interesting and unique approach. So, Teresa, as you're talking about that kind of trust and openness, you're learning what they need. You're learning that they – it sounds like what you're really discovering and it's reinforcing is that – the women and the people in those communities know what they need in a unique way. And we can't bring our own assumptions to them that we understand or know. We can bring curiosity and the best of intentions. But we right. have to defer right. to them to design solutions that work for them. And we have to give them room to fail and try something new. And I think, like, sometimes we, you know, we think, well, I just gave that person X, Y, Z dollars. They should be able to resolve everything. And, you know, this is a critique on philanthropy. It's also a critique on us as individuals. We have become a society that expects us to have instant results. Right. And <laughs> what we need to come to the terms of is that we did not get in to the inequalities that we have today overnight. These have been generational bits and pieces of inequitable po policies and uh, and, and moments in our own government that have created these, you know, chasms of, of experience. And so what we say is we want to come to you. We trust you to have the answers. If it doesn't work the first time, let's try something else. Rather than saying, well, it worked over here, so we want you to do it over here. Um, and we also recognize that, well, you may be providing health care services. You're probably also providing educational services, and you probably also have a strategy around environmental work. So you could do all of those pieces. We're not going to divvy and divide it up because they are all so connected to each other. Where does your funding come from that enables all of this work to happen? Uh, thanks for asking that question. We, we are a public foundation, so we raise the dollars. You know, the mission of the Ms. Foundation is to build women's collective power in the United States. So we are about collective power. Your dollar and my dollar means that somebody gets $2 instead of somebody just getting $1. We operate from a place of abundance. We believe that we have enough in this country, and all we have to do is shift the resources. So um, much of my job is about raising the dollars, about asking the critical questions and trying to raise the dollars so that we can move them to the field and to those who need them most. The majority of our dollars are coming from other foundations. We go into deep relationship with our partners in the field. Um, some big foundations give us dollars to move those dollars down. And we also take contributions from people who want to do something. They want to do one thing every day, so they make a contribution to us as part of their giving. And we're able to have the impact across the country. 
um, around the work that we're trying okay. to do. So speaking of which, if anybody listening would like to donate, how can they go about doing that? It's a very simple process. You can just go up to our website, forwomen.org, F-O-R-W-O-M-E-N.org, and, uh, and you'll see a big donate button. And you'll also learn a lot about our grantee partners, a lot about the work we do to support nonprofit sector, and a lot about um, the impact we're trying to make in the field. So, Teresa, um, you mentioned before, I love the way that you put it, it's our collective power as women in this country. Now, some people, when they hear that, they go, amen. We haven't had power. We haven't had voice. We haven't had protection. There isn't equity. Other people may hear that and say, wait a second. Um, does that mean women are taking over? Where are men in the equation? Um, talk a little bit about the relationship between when women do have power, financial equity, health care equity, reproductive rights. What does that do for families? And what does that do for our communities? You have to, you know, we have to understand that a, a, if the Ms. Foundation for Women, which is our title, right, that's the name of us, we are working to support the issues that affect the lives of women and their communities. We are intentional about that language because we know that this work is about moving us towards gender equity. I say all the time to people, uh, if everybody had to carry a purse, everybody had to carry a purse, we wouldn't be carrying everybody's baggage. If every <laughs> pair of pants had pockets, we wouldn't be asked to carry everybody's baggage. Women wouldn't be forced to carry a bag if everything had pockets, if everything was structured like that. But you and I both know the world is not, fashion is not equitable, life is not <laughs> equitable. And what we're trying to do at the Miss Foundation is lift up the levels of inequity so that we can figure out how to get to an equitable society. And society will be best when all of us are seen and heard, men and women and gender nonconforming, and those who identify otherwise. We all have to be seen in order to be able to do the work and move towards equity and equality. And so, you know, we have men on our board. We have a couple of men who are our grantee partners in the work that we're trying to do. Um, this cannot be resolved by just women. Getting to gender equity cannot happen by just women. If that was the case, that then when the women's movement started... <laughs> Um, we would we, we make up 51 percent of the population. We'd be there. We'd be there already. Right. right. <laughs> and and, it, and it, it can't happen that way. It hasn't happened that way. So we have to try something different. It's going to take all of us, um, not just because we have sons or daughters, not just because we have mothers or fathers. It's going to take all of us because it's the right thing to do to move towards equity. And when we have full equity and full um equality in all of the spaces and places, we have a better society. And we have a better society. We have a caring society. And we have one who uh, can take care of each other and knows what to do. And we have a much more profitable society when, uh, because people are all worth is being seen. When you look across the portfolio of what you're funding and the various work that's out there, how much of it, what's the balance between systemic change, laws, policy? How much of it is about um, getting money into the hands of women through wages, work opportunities, investment? And how much of it is, to tap into a 70s term, consciousness raising, uh, making people yeah. aware of the issues that shape their behavior as to where they spend their money or how they cast their vote? Yeah, um, I'm not sure I could divide it up in percentages, but we don't, we don't, we do not at the Mids Foundation um, just move towards charity. We are moving towards change. We ask our partners in the field to look at the systemic issues that are impacting them and figure out how to address them, which is why we know, uh, based on research we've done and conversations we've actually been in, that. Uh, people are doing, working on multiple issues in multiple movements, having multiple outcomes um, and, and multiple strategies to make that work happen. So almost all of our grantee partners are doing something that has a policy uh, inclination to their work. They don't want to keep having to fight the same battles. They want to change the system and amplify the voices of those in their community to make the change happen. And we actually have, I think right now, interestingly enough, we have... I think six grantee partners who have people running for state elected office. That's so interesting. So is it the campaigns that got the grants? No, 
the organizations themselves, but these leaders in, you know, we know this to be true, nonprofit leaders who care with all of their heart and soul about the impact they want to have, um, they are the ones who are now making determinations that they want to get into the structure of government to change the system so that it can they, their voice can be heard and their constituents' voices can be heard. So now there is an obvious giant elephant in the room. Its name is Dodd. Um, so with the Supreme Court decision, all this work that's been underway, um, you've been working on these issues nonstop. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about with that, but let's start with upon its announcement, to what degree did it change or um, shift your focus on your activities? Or were you just already ahead of all of us and moving forward? In so many ways, we were ahead of all of us. Oh, many, many, uh, especially in philanthropy um, and in the nonprofit sector. Because we were already uh, moving dollars to uh, women and girl led organizations who were working in their communities, who were responding. So they were, we were already working. Here's an example. We were working with organizations that were helping girls of color with leadership and education, et cetera. So there were girls who were system involved. So when Dobbs came down and when you're system involved, the state is your parent, right? So we were already in relationship with those organizations who could then start asking the critical questions. And because we had said to them, use the money the way you see fit, they were able to shift and make move dollars where they needed those dollars to go. We also, you know, you mentioned when you were talking a bit in my bio that I had spent eight years working with the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women in a blue state like the state of Connecticut. And um, it was a policy job. I, I was working with ge the General Assembly uh, and the governor's office on policies. And at that time, that was 16 years ago, I was, I was working on legislation then that many of our grantee partners are working on now and will continue to work on around hospital mergers that would have, you know, eliminated reproductive access to women in hospitals when those mergers took place. We were looking at how hard it was, you know, the change requirements for um, clinics to be able to function as a clinic and not as a hospital. They were called trap laws. We were looking at, you know, a number of things like the definition of person. Those le that legislative battles were happening across this country for many, many years before we ever got to the Dobbs decision. And it was a strategy. The Dobbs decision was a strategy to put forth in front of people this question, right? What is the decision around Roe v. Wade? What's the right case going to be that gets to the right Supreme Court in their minds to, you know, make to, to make a, a law that's, you know, going to make it push push it down to state level? And um, that's where it became. That's where Dobbs is really a dangerous spot. So, one, thank you for carrying the torch all this whole time doing all that work so that, you know, so many different organizations are ready to be nimble and respond. But can you briefly explain, um, for many, Dobbs was a wake-up call for white women, um, women yeah. affluent women. Um, and I think part of it is that um, it wasn't part of our understanding in many cases um, how vulnerable we all are. What was happening in those years when we were taking this for granted that was making women of color more acutely aware of what was at risk? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, women of color for many years um, have they, they have termed the language reproductive justice. And the concept of that is that it is not just whether you have the right to parent or not, it's a complexity of a whole bunch of issues that are added into um, what that looks like. And so what we realized, what many women of color realized was that there were so many injustices in our lives that they were piling on to each other. And so we were, hospitals were being defunded, right? If you didn't have access to health insurance, you weren't getting the best of doctors, um, you know, Issues around environmental health were disproportionately affecting young people and people of color living in urban environments. 
if you're an indigenous person living in indigenous lands and your lands are being taken from you or they are drilling. So the awareness of what was happening also changed the flexibility of just being able to up and move wherever mm-hmm. you wanted to. I mean, there's this, this conversation of awareness is, you know, you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I was the first one who came out, you know, right after the Dobbs decision and said, this is a white woman's wake up call. And I say that not to critique, but many of us saw this coming. We could see it very clearly that there was an attack and that because the federal government and so many folks have uh, been able to trust the government, where people of color and women should never have trusted the government. It, is, it was not designed for us or by us, and so the systems do not help us. And so I, you know, I say often that women of color saw this coming, and we knew it when we voted in 2016, mm-hmm. and we knew it when we voted in 2020. And in all actuality, it was the majority of white women who voted for the person who was able to appoint people onto the Supreme Court who were able to make this decision. And, you know, we have to, like, really trust what we know. When it walks like a duck and squawks like a duck, (laughs) it is a duck. And so just because somebody sits in front of a Senate committee and says, oh, yes, precedent is going to stay, but we can read all their other decisions, you know, you got to we have to be critical and we have to critique. And we have to ask ourselves, who's not at the table and what does that need to look like? Right. And we've all got to be in it together. So at the the last half hour, we were starting to talk about the impact of Dobbs. And there's so much work to be done. There's a lot to discuss. But what I want to start with, particularly because this is business radio, is what does this mean for women's economic health and well-being? Oh, yeah. um, That that, I'm like... Flabbergasted. I don't even know where to start sometimes because it's such a right. We know that the cost of having a child when you are planning for it can have significant impact on your lifelong earnings and um, and not just your earnings in one moment, but your earnings over time. We know that child care in this country is almost as costly as college and university. Um, so, you know, just to start there, if you um, if you become pregnant and you are forced to have a child, your economic security changes disproportionately. Mm-hmm. If you're a young person in college, um, then that means your earnings over time, you're juggling that much more. It will have implications on your own health, which means, you know, when you do get into the workforce, there are health concerns. There are significant health disparities in addition to everything else. There are also maternal disparities. People and women of color, particularly black women, are one in three times higher, more likely to die from birth implications than, uh, than, than white women are. And so we are talking about potentially losing a portion of our population. Mm-hmm. There's a new movie out called Aftershock. If people don't believe me, they can watch it. It's a brilliant movie about, uh, about what happened, even when people were expecting uh, to have children, and then uh, their lives were lost, right? So that's a loss of the of income into a family. That's a loss of a uh, of a person in in a broader community. There's a whole bunch going on there. Um, we can talk about it from the cost of the cost of healthcare, the cost of you know of actually providing childcare and healthcare uh, from infancy through, um, and you know the reality of this is. We will have women who did not want to be mothering with fathers who will be required to father. Mm-hmm. And we already know that those tensions in relationships are problematic, right? And so it's not just women's economic security, which is significant. It will also be men's economic security when we are, you know, forced forced to parent when we do not want to. And then this conversation is broad. And it also comes down to the family's economics. It affects everybody in the household. But I want to pack that, you know, I asked a big question. You appropriately gave me a big and juicy answer. But I want to unpack some of it, make sure that I'm tracking it, and also for our listeners. So um, obviously, let's start with health and well-being, that um, 
maternal mortality rates um, significantly affected and worse so for women of color without the ability to control their own fertility. It's profound. Wow. Um, a three times wow. greater chance of dying in childbirth. In childbirth. Devastating. Or, from, or complications of childbirth, right? Um, and because uh, women of color have higher rates of C-sections. C-sections are major surgery. Those women will be out of the workforce and wherever else for longer periods of time. Okay, so that brings me to the next thing. We often here on Women at Work talk about the talent pipeline, but I also want to talk about, let's call it the economic pipeline for a minute. So um, as I hope, like my daughter, her friends, all these young kids out there thinking about school, um, the salaries that you make when you enter the workforce, A, just to begin with, in a perfect world, or not a perfect world, but even without the elimination of reproductive rights, women start at lower salaries. It affects how much we earn over our lives, which affects Social Security. It affects our retirement savings. Retirement. Mm -hmm. So it means that not only do women have less all along the way, but women who statistically live longer than men also have less in those later years. And as you said, if I'm connecting the dots, with each pregnancy, with each child born, we're out of the workplace, It has an effect on um, whether or not we're working, how much we're working, how much we're paid, our career advancement. And so it has a ripple effect into those really long-term financial realities. Absolutely. Systemic bias is real. And so women are being, you know, even if they come out of college and are making the same as their male counterpart, you know, two years in, you know, women's leadership is seen different than men's leadership. Mm-hmm. And then they announce they're getting married. And and many employers look at that when a male gets married uh, and is building his family. He may say they may see that as responsible and consistent. When a woman announces she's getting married uh, in a marriage, there may be a determination that, well, gosh, she's going to get pregnant and then she's going to leave or she's going to get pregnant and we've already invested in her and she's going to leave, right? So then there's not as much investment that mm-hmm. goes on. And we know that to be true. And what you touched on, Laura, is exactly it. Uh, when If from jump there is a disparity and you are out of the workforce and, and our Social Security is predicated on our salaries, and you have a 403B or a 401K or whatever else kind of retirement you might have, and it's all based on how much salary you have and how much you can put in, if you've got three children or two children or one child, and you had to then spend three to five years paying for childcare or after school, that money was not going into uh, your retirement account. And the other thing we have to keep in mind, not only do we have to think about this if you're young, you've got an unplanned child or you have a child that you, you know, were not anticipating at that point in your lifetime. On top of it, on top of it, you also have um, expenses related to your schooling Mm -hmm. or you dropped out of school. And so the pipeline for what jobs you might be susceptible to changes significantly. I mean, we do know that you need to have at least two years post high school education Uh, in any form in order to actually try to be making a livable wage in this country. And so, and many people, uh, you know, what we forget, I'm in a salaried job, you know, but what we forget is if you've got an hourly job, that means you are getting by every hour that you work, then you may not go to a doctor's appointment Mm -hmm. uh, and you may not have health insurance. And so those dollars are either being put back on society, or we have people who are carrying greater levels of debt as they move forward because they can't then pay for all of the expenses that are affiliated with it, and their earning potential changes. This brilliant and articulate voice that you're hearing is Teresa Younger. She is the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. And I, of course, am Laura Zarrow, and I'm your host for Women at Work here on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. So, Teresa, as we're looking at this, the ripple effect the many different implications of forcing women to have unplanned pregnancies come to fruition, to have and raise children that they otherwise may not have. Um, We know there's a tremendous amount of work to be done to 
create legislation to fix this. But in the meantime, what are corporations doing? What should be corporations? What should corporations be doing? Because as you lay this out right now, um, so much of what's at risk is actually um, there are arenas in which corporations often either provide solutions or we've been asking them to provide solutions. I'm thinking about family leave. I'm thinking about child care. I'm thinking about um, how organizations facilitate upward advancement for all members of the corporate community. Are you seeing activism on that front and as opposed to just on the rolling, like fixing what's happened at the Supreme Court through legislation? Yeah. So we are seeing, um, you know, I think what we should be asking is what are the comprehensive health care policies for um, for uh, people in our communities and, what, and, and in our families? So when you're taking a job, ask the questions, not just questions around access to abortion and paid leave and time off. You should be asking for questions around fertility. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And infertility support. And what happens with same-sex couples? You should care about all of those because they have knock-on effects to everything. Um, and so, you know, what what uh, we believe corporations need to do, what we believe everybody needs to do, we as individuals need to create the demand and ask the questions of our employer. And employers need to take a look at their overall policy. And we need to understand that, you know, we, uh, ha- we will have indirect impact and direct impact. One of the things that we don't are not talking about is the additional cost to women who choose not to um, have a child at the time, who choose to have an abortion, the cost of them. They will, in many cases, because there are so many states who have said no abortions in this state, no abortions after six weeks, they're having to drive hours they are having to put themselves up in hotels. They are having to pay for the abortion itself, then stay in the stay in a hotel again, and then drive all the way back. Then, right, in some states, we're seeing states who are trying to criminalize women for crossing the border and birthing people for crossing a border to determine what they want to do with their bodies. These are very, I mean, very expensive mm-hmm. kinds of decisions that people are having to make. And, and, you know, quite honestly, with the number of clinics that are shutting down because of what state laws are, um, we're going to see real overcrowding. Women will not, this is not a case where we will see women not having abortions. That's actually not the case. We know from history. They will not have safe abortions. That's the difference. That's the key. Those with privilege will always make their way to being able to find a safe abortion. Those without, and privilege doesn't have to be a huge amount of money, Mm-mm. but if you don't have an extra $1,000 today, then you may have even less than that at the end of this process. And also what many people don't realize is how many married women have abortions, how many women in their 40s have abortions. In fact, many, many married pe- women who already have children have abortions, right? This is a recognition. We're in loving, trusted, committed relationships are having abortions. We are also not recognizing, given the changes in the laws that some of the states are doing, the life of the mother mm-hmm. is not being seen as value, right? We are being seen as incubators. And so there are real reasons why you might have a medical abortion, and it needs to be safe, and it needs to be something that is covered by our health insurance. This is part of comprehensive health care. And what Dobbs set up in, in a conversation about not having privacy mm-hmm. means that we're, we could see, and, you know, I have to tell you, Justice Thomas brought it up, we could see the Supreme Court looking at many different things that take the responsibility and the role from the individual and say you don't have the privacy to marry who you want to, to be in a relationship with whom you want, to um, have a relationship with your doctor that allows you and your doctor to determine what's going on with your body. I mean, there's a whole bunch of decisions that are sitting out there that are predicated on a conversation about privacy. And 
I'm not an attorney, um, but it terrifies me to think that we're going to rely on a document that was written 200 years ago, in which case neither you nor I were even mentioned yep. originally. Neither, neither you nor I were seen as having value in our communities and what was going on. And I, you know, did not even get voting rights. Nope. Right. You know, so some women got voting rights. A hundred years ago, many did not. Right. right? And not when those original and not when those original documents were written. Um, This brings me back to a term that you've written about. um, But I think a lot of it may be new to a number of people, which is the concept of bodily autonomy. Can you explain what it is and how it plugs into this? Yeah. So the idea that we uh, bodily autonomy is the concept that you you get to make a determination over your body. Your body is not a concept of the state, and you get to make a determination about if, what, and when you want to do with your body. Um, and we cannot, we should not be criminalizing that. So bodily autonomy, when we talk about um, a determination about whether a woman wants to have an abortion, this is about your body, what you want to happen to it, how you advocate for that, and how it gets seen. You know, women's bodies have been hypersexualized. It's I could go, you you and I both know what we're saying, and many <laughs> yes. of your listeners do too. The reality is our bodies are our bodies, and we cannot have them politicized, and we cannot have them um, de- uh, determined by by the public what, they sh- what should be happening with them. So being able to make full, knowledgeable decisions about your body, that's bodily autonomy, all by yourself. And clearly, with the with the Supreme Court decision and the legislations that's coming out in all, in so many of these states, we're seeing it at risk in multiple ways, with impacts that are both that are going to be multifaceted um, in their negativity, yeah. with economic impact, um, not to mention a kind of um, trauma that women are going to experience, um, whether they are pursuing illegal abortions and all of the hardship that comes with that, or forced to have children that they were not ready to have. Correct. And I, I think we also have to understand this is, you know, I, I said uh, abortion is not a single issue. Abortion, when we talk about this, we and we talk about a uh, populating the uh, the world, we also need to recognize the environmental impact it is having, the economic impact it is having, the restructuring that needs to take place in this country. You know, I think it was the South Dakota governor who said, you know, we will support uh, women and their children, except once that child is born, they have some of the lowest levels of education and support. They have they don't have comprehensive health care that are helping those people. We have to understand that these have knock-on effects continuously. And we are not prepared in this country or globally for the impact of, an, of what this will do to our environment. Um, what Dobbs did or said to me is that we do not trust women to make the, and birthing people to make the decisions as they see fit. This is actually a human rights infringement. And if this is happening in another country, and it has, mm-hmm. we would be up in arms. And at the same time, so there's both, and we think about this with a lot of diversity issues. What is the moral imperative? What is the business imperative? And so it obviously raises all of these moral, ethical issues. Um, And regardless of where an individual falls in their view of those, there's a huge economic impact that's going to happen here. And it's not just going to happen to the families who have lost that bodily autonomy or that choice. It's going to happen collectively as we have more and more women who cannot support themselves financially short and long term. It's going to have a ripple effect through the economy. We're going to have fewer Mm -hmm. people in the workplace, less talent in the workplace. Um, The ripples are going to go on for years to come. Yeah. And in the work, you know, one of the things we have to understand is the workplace is only better when it has the most diversified voices at the table. And so if we start taking those voices from the table for whatever reason, we don't have an economy that can actually respond and reflect what needs to happen. And so, you know, we need an economy that recognizes that child care providers 
whether they are friends and family or a child care facility, actually need to be making a, a, a livable wage also. We need to understand that education from pre-K all the way through college actually needs to be part of a learning education. So how do we get there to providing those supports? Um, then we also, and we also have housing issues in this country. The cost of housing goes up. You can't have, uh, you shouldn't be living multiple, multiple people in one spot. That's not uh, healthy. And there's also mental health concerns that come into all of this. I mean, this is not a single issue. This is a complex issue that has knock-on effects on so very many people. So I want to switch gears for a minute. I want to jump back in time because we only have a few minutes left. And I want our listeners to know a little bit about you because you, just on your own, role model, um, leader, you're so interesting. And that um, one of the things that you've written about is how um, these issues are core to democracy, and people may not realize you actually are an army brat. You grew up in a military family. Yeah. Where? North yeah. Dakota, right? So yeah. talk to me about, and our Girl Scout, so <laughs> steeped in patriotism and community. So talk to yeah. me about where that still lives in you and the form that it takes. Yeah. So uh, I, I think I mentioned to you, Laura, I, I, grew up knowing more about farming than feminism and thought GS meant Girl Scouts, not Gloria Steinem. Now I know a lot about feminism. I also know about farming and planting seeds. I know that Girl Scouts is still critically important to me and Gloria Steinem is on speed dial. And <laughs> I, I, I say all of that because I think when we come into work, we have to understand the complexities that we bring to it. I was raised a Girl Scout. Um, my father was in the Air Force. He spent 25 years in the Air Force. We traveled around the world. And when I was 11, we moved to North Dakota, to Minot, North Dakota. And um, and I had a Girl Scout. There was a Girl Scout troop there, just as there was a Girl Scout troop in every country and every state I had ever lived in. And part of the Girl Scout values is to make the world a better place. And I believe that in my core. And I believe that my father and my brother and my grandfathers, by serving they, by serving in military service, they were making the world a better place. It's a volunteer military, and so they made those decisions. I also believe in making the world a better place. My mother believed in making the world a better place. And so I, each and every day, get up to do this work because I want to make the world a better place, because I believe in the United States, because I believe in humankind, and I believe that we can be better than our worst day because there is a rainbow out there and we have to keep striving for it. And each and every one of us can do something on a daily basis that makes the world a better place. We don't have to solve all the problems. <laughs> we just have to do one thing every day. It's it, it's encouraging to hear that because there are a lot of problems to solve. And there's also a lot of difference <laughs> of opinion about how to solve those problems. But it seems like there's an awful lot of opportunities about how to do something good that makes the world better every chance we can get. Yeah, so, and we just have to find commonality. I think we're so quick to divide each other up. You don't do this, you don't do that. You know, what's wrong with you, what's not wrong with you. In this country, as well as globally, we have a lot of similarities, and we need to find those similarities, and we need to figure out how we want the world to look. And for those that are, you know, don't want it to include me and don't want it to include you, then I don't have to spend my time and energy with them. I can actually spend it creating and envisioning a world that's equitable and balanced and collective and where we see power as a good thing that includes us all, we can go there together. So you've talked a lot about the ways you're trying to make an impact in the world, the way that the Ms. Foundation for Women is. Um, but we're also all individually um, shaped by all the experience we have in the work that we do. How is the Ms. Foundation for Women changing you? Wow. You know, um, when I started, the vision statement on the wall uh, placed me in the ability to uh, have my voice at the table. And the vision statement says, we believe in a safe and just world where power and possibility are not limited by race, gender, class, sexual orientation, gender identity, age, or disability. We believe that equity and inclusion are the cornerstones of a true democracy in which the worth and dignity of every person is valued. When I saw that statement on the wall, the cornerstone of a true democracy, 
that for me said, there will be those whose voices cannot be heard. But in a democracy, all voices are valued. Mm -hmm. And so my role at the Ms. Foundation as its CEO and president is to amplify those voices, to carry them when I have to, and to bring folks along so that they can find their voice and speak their truth so that we can get to a democracy and a safe and just world that includes us all. That is beautiful and profound, Teresa. Um, Wow. Way to go for, you know, a slogan on the wall. But it's more than that. It's really a mission and vision statement. So um, I'm sure there are people listening who have thoughts about today, who either are in wild disagreement with the things we're talking about, we'd love to hear from you too, um, or who want to get involved and learn more. For those people, um, where can they find ways to, let's, I want to talk about it in a few different ways. One is that if they, um, we said in the first half hour, we noted if you want to make contributions to the Ms. Foundation for Women, where do you go? So if you want to make a contribution, a donation, uh, you can go to our website, www.forwomen.org, F-O-R-W-O-M-E-N.org. And on that website, you will learn about our grantee partners, our giving, our strategy to move money, and what we are doing, how we invest in our money, and with the kind of impact we're looking to have. We don't just make contributions. We also support nonprofits and the leadership of those nonprofits to grow and do the work they need to do. And so is that the same website if there are people who are looking for funding? Absolutely. And we post up there where uh, what, what grants we have open, they're geographic, they're, you know, issue, not issue-based, but, you know, girls as opposed to um, some of the other. We have a birth justice portfolio. We have a r- rapid response fund. So, yes, if you're looking, go up there, take a look. You'll see what we have open and what we don't have open. So you can absolutely get a, a whole bunch of information. Up Fantastic. And for information, they can find you at Ms. Teresa Younger and at Ms. Foundation. Absolutely. On, the, on all the handles. On all the handles. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us and for all the work you're doing. If any of you listening have a question, a comment, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.